Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Melody, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're really thrilled to have you at the rectory virtually. And uh, Melody and I both graduated from the same university. It was uh, Mount Vernon Nazarene College when we both started going. Is that right, Melody? Or was it already university by the time you joined us? I think it was the year that I started that it was university. It was either the year I started or the year right before that. Okay. And in the intervening years, we won't say how many years, you have (laughs) accumulated several things on your resume. So um, including you got married, you have three children, you got a master's degree, and you have a, a, like a job that pays your bills. And then you have what we're calling this season, your after hours, uh, which is that you are an author and you write under a pen name, which I actually didn't know until we started. I knew that you were a writer, but I didn't know that you used a pen name. Is it okay if we share that on the podcast? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Can you actually pronounce it for me? Cause I've I'm a reader. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. So it's S.R. Tombrin. Um, and I, you know, I decided initially to do a pen name because I thought it would provide me with a little bit of sort of distance from it and take away some of the pressure. Because I think when you set your mind to doing publication, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And so I felt like having a pen name would enable me to do it and still have fun with it and take breaks as I needed to. Has it worked? Um, I think it is sometimes, yeah. At this point, I'm sort of stuck with it. So I, this is like, I'm just gonna keep, keep, keep on using it. But um, I also selected it because um, Tombrin is my mom's maiden name um, and it has a Guyanese heritage. Um, it's, um, it's a diaspora name. So you won't find Indians in India with, the name Tombrin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's exclusively West Indies. Um, and so I thought that that was unique. Um, and then the S and the R are my grandma and my my grandpa's uh, first name, first initial put together. So. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. What a way to pick a pen name. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't just like pick it out of a hat. <laughs> Now, has this was this an ambition for you to write for a long time? And if so, did you like imagine it being your your full time job when you were first contemplating it, or did you think it would always be kind of a like an avocational after hours kind of pursuit? Well, it, it's something that I've been working on for a long time. I actually I was I had this whole backstory planned out that I was going to share with you, but I might abbreviate it. I'm not sure, but it, I have um, report cards from when I was in second grade and third grade and fifth grade um, from teachers who um, complained about my lack of focus, um, but also praised me for my storytelling skills. And actually, um, 
I'll go ahead and share a little bit of the backstory. I have, I have myopia. Um, and so, um, as a child, it wasn't diagnosed until a little bit later, but a lot of my childhood memories are very fuzzy because I visually couldn't see mm -hmm. anything. Um, and so when I look at my, um, my report cards, I can tell that there was some issues in terms of me being able to focus on assignments because I couldn't see what was happening um, on the chalkboard um, and time management issues because I couldn't read the clock. Um, and it didn't, nobody picked up on the fact that it was a vision issue until I think it was the end of third grade when, when, and by then I was definitely behind in math and struggled mm -hmm. with, you know, uh, just struggled just in general, but I had this, um, this love of reading and, and this passion for books. And it gave me a, um, uh, a sense of belonging and, um, it made me, it empowered me. Um, and I felt, uh, stability and security in the stories. And I, I will go ahead and share just um, a couple of the little, uh, maybe just one of the, I'll share one of, I'll share my second grade. Yeah. It was one teacher, but she wrote two different, you know, cause they, they used to write out like quarterly reports or whatever. And so she, um, the first one, she's complaining about my time management skills and let's, let's work together with Melody to help her with time management skills. And then um, later, I think it was probably the, the second quarter, Melody continues to get absorbed in reading and writing, which can result in delightful products or can and often does get in the way of her completing assignments. <laughs> let's continue to work both at home and in school to help Melody develop strong study skills. And then the, the, I think it was the last one. Oh no, it was um, April, April of that year. So maybe there was one more after that. I can't remember, but uh, Melody is so proud of her completed book in writer's workshop and the whole class enjoyed hearing her story. Her writing has matured um, and there's more to it, but I, those are just like little clips from, from this particular year before I actually was, um, you know, before they actually even knew I had vision issues. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that it's always kind of been a part of my, my feeling of, of childhood stability and, and something that gave me confidence because I knew it was something that I, you know, I could understand the rules. I could see expressions on people's faces in a book um, when I couldn't see them on people's faces in the classroom. And, you know, I can't tell you to this day who my teachers were before third grade. Um, oh my or what gosh. my classmates, what their names were or what they looked like. I have no recollect, like those, those memories are just gone because I couldn't, I couldn't see them and I had a hard time connecting. Um, and, and, and there were gaps in my, um, in my understanding because I just didn't know what was going on. So I always felt, I didn't realize I had those issues. So I thought that was how everybody was. And I always felt like I was just a little behind on everything, but I could see a book right here you know, like, <laughs> and the words. And so that, that it gave me, um, it gave me peace to, to participate yeah. in that. Um, it has lent, it has given me, um, it has given me a passion for, for books and for storytelling and um, things that I can control in my head. <laughs> so. <laughs>
Now, I I really think like I have a whole shelf of books I read when I was probably like nine, 10 and 11 that were just like so, so shaped me. Like I, I have such beautiful fond memories of them. Um, and it was just like, I want my children to read these in the future. Like they're so important. Um, do you have like during that time or even after, um, are there childhood books that you remember reading like that really gave you that sense of stability and like peace? Hmm. So in sixth grade, I remember that like, the book that I felt the strongest connection to was in sixth grade. Um, and that was the Susan Cooper um, novels. Uh, and that all, it, the, the whole series was just a, a delight. And then prior to that, The Giver was one that I really connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's one, there's one about an island um, the island of the blue dolphin yes that's it that's it yes and I connected very much with that my daughter actually just started reading that one uh, for school and, and and then um in fifth grade I read through the correct the the reading curriculum before um I was supposed to I just flew through every book that was assigned for the year and so um my was it fifth grade or fourth grade I think it was fourth grade actually so my fourth grade teacher um, gave me an off, gave me a list of books that were kind of off of the curriculum. And I remember the last um, battle was one of those that just really clicked with me. So just a variety of different types of books that I, but honestly, I think a lot of the, um, like the Ralph the Mouse books, like a lot of the fantasy kind yeah. of books were really appealing to me at that age. So well, it's cool that that thread, you can kind of trace it through and be like, yeah, this has always been like this other world maybe has always been so attractive to you. Yeah. And do you think it's yeah. the, the fact that there are, there are rules in those worlds that are more, um, I don't know, maybe more spelled out or concrete than if you were reading like a, me- a memoir, there's no like mm-hmm. gameplay or rules that you're following in that is just somebody's actual life is that what appealed to you in mm-hmm. fantasy yeah I would definitely say that I think that um uh, well first of all I think with a lot of children's fantasy there was a formula there that I gravitated to where you know the 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 characters were very unsafe at certain points in the story mm-hmm. um and then they were safe again and mm-hmm. I, I, that could be a formula for any for for a variety of genres. But I think with fantasy stories, it could, it can be sort of taken to the extreme because you can sort of stretch the rules. Um, and and then and then at the end, the characters come back and they're safe and their families are saved. And I, I realized that as as I matured, some of those stories did not always end happily and like those rules were bent quite a bit but as a child I felt like you know it was a way for me to kind of jump into a different reality um but then I could figure the rules out and I I got it and then I knew that there would be security at the end of the story and so it kind of it, it pulled me in in that way um I'm really curious as to what your day job is like what we kind of skipped over that part but what is what is it that you do yeah um so i am a librarian i i'll tell you a little story about my brother um when he introduced me to his girlfriend he made the the kind of funny little bit of backhanded compliment comment she started working in libraries at age 12 and just never moved on 
Um, <laughs> and I didn't actually start working in libraries at 12. He was exaggerating. I, it was 15. Well, <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, I, I did start in a public library um, and then we moved and then I started at another public library and then I went to college and I was working in a private academic library. Then I, we moved, you know, after I got married to it, I just never left. I, um, <laughs> I've worked, I worked in several academic private libraries. I've worked in an art museum library. Wow. Um, I'm currently working at a community college library and I also do re virtual reference librarianship. In fact, I think what you told me was, because I said, oh, that the little chat bubble that comes up on my college's thing, she said, yeah, it could be that I've answered some of your questions. That's me on the other end. And I was like, yes, whoa, I thought yeah. it would just be somebody that I would run into at my college. You know, sometimes it is. Um, we have, so the, the chat service that I work with, there's 500 or so libraries that we work with. It's a 24 hmm. seven uh, service. Um, sometimes the client libraries will opt to have the day hours covered by their staff and then the evening hours are covered by us. Um, some of the libraries are online only school libraries and they don't actually have a, a reference librarian paid on staff. So they just contract the, the um, reference basically to us. Um, it's a fun job. I enjoy it. You know, sometimes I'll get questions like, I, I don't know what to read. What should I read? And so I will um, send book lists to them, like New York Times bestseller lists or ALA um, recommended books, or ask them more questions about what they're interested in and find them like Goodreads lists so that they can make the choice themselves. And oftentimes it's, it's I find that they have just sort of a broad variety of interests and I have a very niche, um, you know, like I can recommend a lot of YA and I can recommend a lot of fantasy and sci-fi and that's pretty much it. So uh, yeah, so I'll send, I'll refer them to a service that, that does, but I will say that um, for the last couple of years, I have been working with a program called Writing the Other, um, which is Ooh. a, it's an online workshop uh, designed to educate writers about how to create diverse, um, inclusive environments in their worlds. And it, I think a lot of the students of the workshops, um, they're in fantasy and sci-fi. So they are starting from scratch and they really don't know, you know, how do I include this, this person who has a disability or how do I include a black person, you know, in my story, if I'm not black. And so the courses themselves are sort of designed to help give some tools um, and also give some, some gentle, um, uh, you know, warnings along the way, like the, just be, be um, cognizant of these stereotypes and be aware of the fact that this can actually be a little triggering for some people. Um, and so my job with them is I actually have a research class um, and with them and so I'm able to teach um, research uh, 101, essentially how to look for information um, to a, a group of writers. And that happens pretty much every year. I'm really glad you brought that up, Melody, because this is something that's been a theme on at the rectory. It kind of, these, these social um, advocacy and fairness and justice and righteousness types of issues. And I didn't realize, I think that Aaron, our friend Aaron, whose wedding we were both in this summer, is the one who started to educate me about how the publishing world works when that now infamous book, American Dirt, came out. 
And there was all this controversy about a woman writing about the experience of people immigrating across the southern border to the United States. And there was a lot of controversy about whether or not it was controversy. And so mm -hmm. our friend Aaron was starting to tell me about how these books get through the gatekeepers to become these promoted um, pieces of literature and how that's part of the problem. It's not just the author's fault, and she thought there was fault there, but it's also the fault of all the system that brought her forward and kept moving her forward. Um, and I'm curious now, you've been in the publishing industry, and I don't know what all you would like to say since, you know, you're still working in that world, but have you noticed ways in which um, publishing either helps or hinders issues like this, creating fairness and inclusion in writing? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there are publishing statistics um, that are released that show discrepancies just in terms of how what percentage of books get promoted mm. and how many people you know demographic kinds of of data um, and then not long ago there was a big um, hullabaloo on Twitter uh, <laughs> um, where writers were sharing their debut book contract information, um, specifically the amount of money they were making. And someone I think charted it up and was showing if you are of this demographic, then you're, you know, this much more likely to make a six figure amount on your first book. Oh you're this God. demographic, this is about the amount you can expect to make. Um, so I, you know, the fascinating thing about the publishing industry is that I hear from agents and editors constantly talking about um, wanting more material from unique perspectives and wanting more own voices material. Um, but I think that um, it's, it's gotta be a specific kind of item um, and it has to hit mm -hmm. at the right time. Um, and the author has to be just this type of personality. And so I think that it, it does hinder, you know, um, like people who are, are quieter, not as loud um, on social media, who are more nervous about jumping into the fray, I think, are probably less seen and then less likely to be noticed than someone who has more of a personality. Um, <laughs> like, um, and, and so I, yeah, I think that all impacts and plays a role in terms of who gets. Yeah. Do you think something like, um, like book talk and booktube and all these other like social media platforms where people are sharing their books and in like fun and interesting ways. And I think particularly actually in the fantasy realm um, in like really powerful ways. Do you, do you see that shifting maybe the powers that be kind of this publishing sphere structure up here and then more kind of the grassroots fans um, really maybe championing um, <laughs> like a, a book or an author um, and really like putting them out there. I definitely. Yeah. And I even think, you know, like, um, like Patreon accounts, um, yeah. I think are a really, really good way to support those writers that just may not make this an equitable amount of money in the industry. It helps to keep them able to buy their groceries so that they can continue to write. So, um, but I, I do think Grassworks, um, uh, those types of campaigns are for sure helpful in terms of equalizing 
Um, and then I think like it comes down to consumers too. Like um, the publishing companies are going to market what they expect will sell. And what they expect will sell isn't always what, what book readers would be excited about. And I think making intentional choices to select books written by non-white writers, yep. particularly female, or um, you know, uh, just from a different perspective, I think is an important thing. You know, I, I've tried to be very intentional about my my book purchases because I think that it's important for me to to lift up people who need an edge in the industry because there are people that already have that edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are stories that we don't know and the story, and there are stories that we don't know that we don't know. I feel like that's what books have always done for me is just like exposed me to new stories, um, new ways of seeing the world. And even if it's a partial view and I don't, you know, all of a sudden know everything about something, but I'm exposed to it and it makes me think differently. Um, and that is just such a beautiful thing. Like I teach at BG and we had all kinds of reading and all kinds of people. And I really tried to be intentional about crafting my syllabus. It's like on it, right? Like, and who inherently am I saying I value when I put something on there um, and having those conversations. So yeah. What can I ask? What, what kinds of items are on your syllabus? We read like kind of a short account of Malcolm X and how he became literate. Ocean V. Young's, um, it's like a collection of poetry, Exit Wounds in the Night Sky, Second Generation, Vietnamese American, um, beautiful LGBTQ, like just beautiful writing. Um, we read The Best We Could, which is a graphic novel. Mm. Oh, we read a little bit of The Martian, kind of, that was kind of fun. So those are the ones I can remember off the top of my head. I have them on my bookshelf in my, in my office. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to take it. some notes because I think, you know, one of the disadvantages for someone who is diaspora is that my whole education was very, very whitewashed. Um, mm. And so I even trying to write anything coming from my cultural background, it's, it feels very muted to me because mm. I, don't have, I don't have a lot of examples of West Indies, Caribbean, Indian yeah. fantasy stories. They're just aren't, they're not there, you know? I mean, there's, I can give you a few names of specific people, um, but it makes it hard for me to feel comfortable in those realms. And it's much easier for me to want to default to writing about a bunch of white people because that's kind of how I, that's what I've read, you know? Yeah. Do you know the famous, it's now famous TED Talk, it's probably like seven to 10 years old now, but um, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, where she talks about how she grew up in Nigeria with these books about girls with blonde hair and snowflakes and like apples, um, yes. <laughs> had this like, and these were the books that she was reading and that she loved. Yes. They would go to boarding school, but not books that looked like her. And that we're yeah. talking about the mangoes or the papayas are talking about how the right. sun is always shining, <laughs> you know, like, yes, what and we actually, I, I've so had important. those conversations with my mom before because she grew up in Guyana, but she grew up with British, all a British curriculum. Mm. And so her story, like she, she has, like you asked me earlier about formative books yeah. Um, I mean, like Charlotte Bronte and Jane Austen and like all, they were all, those were her books growing right. up and there wasn't, there wasn't any variety. It was all British. Um, mm-hmm. And so, 
sometimes I will send her a thing. I've written a poem or a short story, but I'll use um, Guyanese dialect in it and she will correct it because it bothers her because it's not the English that she feels like should be in a written work. Uh -huh. uh, mm -hmm. yeah. It's so embedded. And then I, it, that makes it hard, hard for me because my only reference for that dialect is her and her family. But then she tells me that's wrong and she's reading it and I'm just hearing it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I think the other, like in terms of like books and book recommendations from friends, I want to get, like you kind of said, like you could tell us specific authors. I just had to look up one. Katie and I have a mutual friend um, who's been on the podcast, Aisha Kasichetti. And she, one of the things, she's from Sri Lanka. And one yeah. of the things I was like, Aisha, like we both geek out about books. And I was like, give me books to read. And so she recommended The Sweet and Simple Kind. And I had to look up how to say it, but Yasmin Gunarante. And okay. I ended up writing like a conference paper and we like presented it together. But it's just like also your friends, like also yeah. your friends have stories and access to stories that might not be in your canon. Yeah. Um, and maybe just asking more people for book recommendations um, can give you kind of new insight. Yeah. And there have been some, um, I, you know, Twitter has been a really helpful um, platform for me in terms of yeah. connecting with people because I have encountered other Guyanese Indians who, you know, some of them are published, but not in my genre, but it's still useful information for me. It's helpful to kind of just expand my my horizons yeah. in that way some of them are published but are more um academic but still again helpful for me if, in terms of like frameworks for my stories mm -hmm. some of them aren't published but are aspiring writers and I feel like that's a networking opportunity and then some of them are Guyanese but not Indian and mm -hmm. there's a difference there um it's it, you know culturally there's a there's a difference between you know, a, um, a black Guyanese person and an Indian Guyanese person and a Chinese Guyanese person yeah. but, and indigenous, but, but there's some similarities and overlap there. So I work towards trying to connect with these people and not, not in a help me kind of way, but like, I want to learn more about my own culture. I want to learn more about what it means to be a writer of work that is meaningful and and also it just makes me feel a sense of community and belonging you know finding you know, happening upon these people so <laughs> twitter is mostly a dumpster fire but i'm glad that also like meaningful you know like yeah you have to be real careful i mean i i for sure i that's that's another reason why i have a, a pen name um mm -hmm. because mm. i can um sort of separate myself a bit more on social media I have not transitioned fully to the pen name on Twitter, but I hope as things progress and move forward that I can just sort of eliminate my original profile and move <laughs> just towards the, the pen name profile. Yeah. Melanie, I kind of find that genre in general is a great place for these kinds of inclusive spaces to be created. And I think there are several, there are several different kinds of genre fiction that can do that. But is it your opinion that that fantasy in particular makes it possible? Or do you find that fantasy is sort of inherently progressive? Do you think that drew you consciously or subconsciously to fantasy if you find that to be true or no? I think that there are aspects of fantasy 
and science fiction that are incredibly progressive. I think that you can look at it, you know, regardless of who the writer is, you can look at sort of, um, you know, I'm thinking of old, like I'm thinking of like 1984. You can look at at, um, at elements of that story and almost it feels prophetic just in terms of what they envisioned for the future or what they envisioned for different pieces of technology or how mm-hmm. people interact and socialize. And I think that that mind game of like, read this thing and then sort of watch how the world evolves <laughs> and how close, you know, closely connected it is, is one of those things that drew me to sci-fi in particular. But I, I think in other ways, it, it actually can be a little bit regressive. Um, Ooh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I think maybe every genre can be like that. There are voices that are really pushing the boundaries and the limits. And then there are voices that are, that's not canon. That, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that, you know, we need to actually sort of scale back on the political correctness and move towards just a fun story, like that kind of thing. Um, and there's a tension there. And there's, um, if you get involved in any of the the spec fic um, Twitter, like you said, it's a dumpster fire. And there's always some kind of big scandal about some, you know, there's some, there are issues amongst people conferences often there's some big something that's going on going on with a conference or the conference um administration so there i can see that there are people on both sides of the spectrum there are people that are really pushing and advancing the genre forward and i admire and respect those people and there are people that are really pulling it or trying to pull mm-hmm. it a different direction and i feel very wary about that because I think that's not that's not specfic at its best. That's specfic trying to fit into this mold that has been done a million times and doesn't need to continue. Yeah, I have friends who are uh, in the comic book world yeah. and in the video game world, and there's those sound very very similar to what you're Absolutely. describing. And they yeah. are women. They're all women, and they encounter this in- intense and sometimes vitriolic language to the work that they offer the space because you are you are playing in right the the like white man's like hobby pool and he's like no 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 this is how it's always been (laughs) my entire childhood is built on and it's like exhausting and really emotional um like the kind of pushback that you're getting from just producing something um it's just like gross so yeah yeah, I kind of know I kind of get the sense that yeah that's the same kind of space yeah it absolutely is and my husband actually he's 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 um one of his sort of after hours things is is video games and he has um uh, you know, he plays with other people and he has shared some of the, some of those dramas with me as well. So, um, so I do think when we talk about it, we see a lot of intersection and similarities there in terms of kind of those voices that are sort of tussling at, at different points. Um, or it feels like all the time actually right now, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like you, they're like, um, Gen Z people like are just so connected to, these worlds of like comics, video games, um, sci-fi that really bringing a pretty dramatically progressive voice. And because they, it's, it's kind of ironic, kind of what you were saying, like you were presented a world in which in fantasy, um, like you could kind of have future, like imagined possibilities and potentials. And then you go into and write and participate in that world. And then suddenly there are rules and you're like, 
no, 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 that's not, that's not what I experienced when I read this. But then you run into these gatekeepers that are like, that's not how it goes. But I do really, especially on social media, just like full force. Um, So many young people fully participating. And I think really going to help move the, move that line back (laughs) for Mm -hmm. the kind of like white male gatekeepers and be like, that's not how this works. And they're like, oh, please. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, one of the other things, I, you know, I haven't done it for a while, but um, for a couple years, right before the pandemic, I was doing um, slush reading um, and editing um, uh, for anthologies and for some science fiction uh, mm. magazines. Um, and it's it's all volunteer. Um, it's just for fun. Um, but I have made some meaningful connections with people just participating in those activities. And with slush reading, um, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned gatekeepers. Um, and I, I realized how very um, subjective slush reading can be in first reading. Um, mm. uh, you know, what, what voices you elevate and send on to the editor and what voices you, you reject. And, um, and it is, it is, it's a, it is a subjective industry in terms of like editors and agents will say, you know, I might, I, I, I might've declined this item because I was having a horrible day. And because I had a million things going on and I was juggling a lot and I just, it didn't connect with me at that moment. Um, but I, I have encountered, um, uh, stories that really um, make me think about the world in an entirely different way and, and really push me into, you know, sort of a place of discomfort, um, but also, you know, left feeling inspired by the end of the story. And then I've encountered stories that just seem mean. Um, mm. they, they, just, they just want to poke fun at this person or they just want to just belittle this gender or, and, and, and you can just feel the, um, uh, I don't know, I, I, it, it, it doesn't feel progressive in any kind of way. It doesn't feel like it's uplifting. It doesn't pull you into something, some, some higher level thinking. It just feels like, um, like elementary school recess. <laughs> yeah. 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 Someone's name calling. Mm. Um, and, and so that, you know, those are kinds of the, the things that I think about when I'm reading, like what is like pulling me into some, um, uh, into kind of higher level thinking and what is, um, yeah, some, what is maybe not suited for <laughs> the magazine, <laughs> for general consumption. <laughs> is there a genre that you've never dipped your toes into as a reader that is like, you either feel like you should or you want to, but like kind of haven't made your way over there yet? Yeah, I think memoir. <laughs> okay. I Is should it- read more memoir. Why? Why should you read more memoir? Because I think that it would be helpful um, to put myself in other people's shoes in the real world. Um, and, and I think it never hurts to experience people's actual journeys. I think that creates empathy. Mm. I like that. 
Um, can you, Melody, can you say like the titles of some of the books that you've written or how many books have you written? Can you give us like a stat, you know, kind of run the numbers? Um, so I, uh, I, <laughs> I have a number of unpublished books. I have a few um, published short stories. I have probably eight or nine published poems. Um, and I have one um, small press published book. So um, I, um, I, there, I think they're all, all the published material is on my website. Um, a lot of the unpublished stuff does not have a set name and I'm not sure it would like <laughs> mean anything to you but uh -huh. um, but if you, you know, on my website I do have um a list of the items that I have published and and their names <laughs> um yeah wonderful well we will link that in our show notes so that people can uh, follow maybe order some uh a book for Christmas yeah I can tell you what my favorite thing that I've written in the last year or two um was if that's yes please at all <laughs> I, you know, I can't remember when I titled it because it's a poem and it's very short I think it's three or four lines long um but it was it's it was um published in um Starline which is a spec thick magazine and it's actually print um but uh or it's a, it's a little journal um uh it's print um but there are a few linked um selections on their website I don't think mine is a linked one but it's um it's about uh, what AI eat <laughs> <laughs> and, and just all these little mechanical pieces that they collect, that they create a spread out of an eat for fun. Um. <laughs> that is so cute. Yeah. I love that. Well, Melody, as we're kind of wrapping up, could, I want to ask Melody a question that actually is sort of from a different season, but I feel like it does work with our after hours theme too, which would be, um, how do you judge your own success? Like, what does it mean to you to be a success in this thing that you do? Admittedly, not, or at least not currently as your full-time job, would that be what you would consider success if you transitioned into being like you're a full-time writer or what's your metric that, you know, like deep inside yourself, I have succeeded at what I am doing in this part of my like calling as a person with certain gifts? Um, I will, I will let you know when I figure out what the definition <laughs> of success is. I'm still working through that. I, I, I think, um, you know, I, we talked a little bit earlier about how, um, uh, reading and storytelling was sort of centering for me as a child, um, and gave me a, a feeling of belonging stability mm -hmm. and something that I felt like I was good good at. Um, and I think as I've gotten older, um, I've just, I've just pressed more into that where, especially during times of transition, um, like for instance, I started a new job at this community college, um, uh, a couple months ago, and I just had this creative explosion, um, at the same time. So it's like, as I'm learning all these new things on the job, and I'm feeling a little imposter syndrome, suddenly I come home and I've got a million things to put down on paper. Um, or like, I remember when I first graduated from college, I was working at Lowe's and it was the, it was like the most depressing job <laughs> I've ever had. I, I think it was like, it was the only time in my career that I wasn't working in a library. 
And, um, and I wasn't, I just, I sort of saw this as maybe this is my, my life. I just graduated from college and I'm just going to be working oh. at Lowe's forever. And, and I never, I, I just had a hard time, um, wrapping my brain around that and not, not, um, seeing, um, sort of the long-term, like, no, this is just a temporary little, mm. um, point yeah. in my life. Um, but I, I remember I, I had this little notebook that they gave me to take notes um, when I, as I was training. And um, while I was waiting for customers at the returns desk, I just start writing poetry in it. And I filled that entire notebook up, not with notes from work, but just <laughs> random poems. And that's like, that's, that's a, that seems to be a theme for me. I've noticed that just when I'm in the middle of this transition, when I'm feeling down, that is my centering place. Um, and that's what makes me happy. And I think if I'm really going to just sort of um, nuts and bolts it, like I think that ultimately success is finding the thing that makes you happy and like sticking with it. Um, and, and, and I don't, you know, I've gone through periods of time where I felt like pub publishing should be my end game with this, but I don't think that will make me happy because I've seen lots of published authors on Twitter um, that are not happy. <laughs> and I, I have published items and I feel imposter syndrome about publishing. I don't feel imposter syndrome about writing. I feel good. Oh, wow. So I feel like as long as I can keep that my center and my focus, I don't have to worry so much about, you know, it'll come when it comes. And like, and I think you asked about number of books and I will say it's been probably, it's probably been 10 10 books um, wow. that I've written. It might, there might be a couple more in there that I'm forgetting about that were really terrible, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's, pro I would probably say I have 10 solid books and I have one that is small press published and I have um, one that made it through um, Pitch Wars, which is a, a writing competition. You um, compete with other people in your genre for a a mentor who's a you know established in the industry and then that person kind of helps the book get ready for agent submission then you have agents sort of bidding like fighting over wow. it but there's no guarantees that it's going to result in them making an offer they just want to see the rest of your book and so then you you submit to them and then you know wait through the process so i have had a book go through that um, I had numerous um, requests for a lot of my books, but I haven't had, I haven't had the right connection yet. The magic hasn't happened yet in terms of an mm -hmm. agent. I think I'm okay with that. I'm just going to continue doing the writing thing. And if more happens, then I will take it into stride. And if not, then I will continue to make my happy place the, the, the point where I'm, where I am right now, I think. Melody, that was beautiful. I feel like that's exactly like we're just going to put music at the end of that. That was, just, that was just so beautifully put and such a good reminder for us just when we're when we're pursuing our passions outside of our work and that sometimes like sometimes we have to have that perspective of like I'm going to take it when it comes but if it doesn't I'm still going to be like this is still keeping me safe in some way and this is still keeping me centered and that has value like just mm -hmm. because it isn't like a consumed product outside mm -hmm. in the world on you know the shelves of Barnes and Noble doesn't mean it's worthless um, right. and I think so so much of it our success like Katie was kind of hinting at is measured in, in a very small 
um, kind of defined way. And so what right. you just explained, I think is really a measure of success that's really, really beautiful. Thank you. And I, you know, I think sort of imagining if I were to be full-time published and I had, you know, I had no need for a second, a day job, I think I would actually be quite sad to lose librarianship. I think that my day job is something that also makes me feel, I mean, there wouldn't be, I would not have started when I was 15 and stuck around for this many years if it wasn't meaningful work for me. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, the way things are right now, it feels very balanced and I'm happy with that. And I don't want to throw too much into it right now while I'm raising kids and all that, but I do want to keep writing. Like that's just not going to stop. Yeah, that's awesome. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Melody, thank you so, so much for making time, you know, between husband and kids and work and books to come talk to us. This was so great. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having me.